You know, ever since we were kids, most of us have had this dream of living life without limitations. You know, what if you weren't limit, limited by uh, time? And you could just time travel to any part of history that you wanted, either in the past or in the future. You know, what if you weren't limited by space and you could just kind of teleport to wherever you wanted all over the globe? What if, what if you weren't limited by oxygen and you could just dive down to the depths of the ocean or you weren't limited by gravity and you could fly as high as you wanted to in the air? A lot of times we've had these ideas of what if we could live life without limitations? You know, we've actually experimented a little bit with, without the, the uh, limitation of gravity. Uh, it's called space travel, and we've seen the effects of life without gravity. And one of the things we've learned is, well, our bodies were actually made and designed to live within the construct of gravity, okay? Because when you take gravity away, what happens? Well, our digestive systems don't work as well. Our bone density isn't as good. We lose muscle mass. We have problems with the inner ear. All of our biological systems tend to struggle when you remove gravity away. And so astronauts who've been in space too long without gravity, what happens? They, they have some digestive issues. They lose bone density and muscle mass. Did you know astronauts in space, they have to work out two to three hours a day just to maintain their level of muscle mass. And some of you are thinking, I don't know if I've worked out two to three hours this year. You know, it sounds rough, but that, that's, that's the reality, okay? So um, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, our culture has been toying with this idea of life without limitations, right? And so we're just kind of deconstructing all kinds of things in our society to reconstruct new systems that have no limitations, one of those areas is the area of marriage and sexuality. Okay, let's just deconstruct how we typically think of sexuality, how we typically think of marriage, and let's just kind of redesign marriage without limitations. Here's the thing. God has actually put limitations in place for our good, right? Gravity exists for our good. The limitations that he puts on marriage those are limitations for our good. So we'll see this morning as we jump into uh, 1 Peter, continuing our study through 1 Peter. We're in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's check it out. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the contact of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so one of the things that might jump out to you as we kind of read this uh, instruction on marriage is that Peter spends six verses talking to wives and one verse talking to husbands, all right? Now, Theologians, most theologians agree it's simply because wives need more instruction, okay? 
No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Now, all you need to do, just ask, just ask your wife that, right? And see what she says. No. Uh, uh, no. Here's the deal. Some also look and say, hey, maybe it's because wives just kind of pick up on things a little faster, you know? So uh, they want all the information. They're like, give, give me all the details. And guys are like, hey, you know, we might read a line and then we're just kind of plowing ahead anyway. So maybe less is more. Um, some have said that. Some said, well, Peter's married. And so he's more thinking about his wife than himself. Here's the deal. Context. Okay. Context is key. Context is the helper. Because at first I'm reading this. And I'm like, gee, Peter, you really set me up, you know? I gotta preach like six times as long to women as to men. That's not really comfortable. I don't like that, Peter. But here's the deal. Context is key. And the context is this. If you remember where we were last week, what's Peter writing about? Citizens, how do you obey an unfair government? Okay? How do you submit to an unfair government? And then he moves on and he says, okay, uh, servants, how do you submit to an unfair master? And then he moves on. And he says, look, Jesus is the example of how he submitted to the Father's will in the face of an unfair creation, all right? And so based on that, Peter says, likewise, wives, here's how you submit to an unfair husband. You understand the context of this passage is women submitting to unfair husbands. He writes to all wives, but it's primarily to wives who have difficult unfair husbands. And here's the thing. Having been in ministry over 15 years now, I can say that uh, it's probably roughly, my guess, would be about six to one women who are on fire for Jesus, married to husbands who are spiritually apathetic or totally disconnected from Jesus. Okay. And so this is the case here. Wives, how do you deal with the fact that you've got an unfair, unjust husband? How do you submit in a situation like that? And so this is the context, okay? That's why you've got the disproportional length for wives versus for husbands. And Peter, he begins and he says, wives, be subject to or submit to your husbands, even if they don't obey the word. And right off the bat, right, our culture has all kinds of problems with this. Uh, the Bible is not politically correct, okay? Just FYI, it's not politically correct. And we have problems. We have a couple problems. One is we live in a culture that tells us that we should treat others based on the way they treat us, okay? It's, it's this system of reciprocity, all right? So based on how you treat me, that dictates how I'll treat you. And sometimes in marriages, we take it up to even another level than that. Because it's not just how you treat me, it's actually my expectation of how you should treat me. So even if you think you're treating me really well, but my bar for you is up here, and you're not meeting this bar, well, all of a sudden, I'm going to treat you as if you're not treating me well at all. Because why have different expectations than what you're doing? And sometimes this happens in marriages. And so he's saying, Peter's writing, no, 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 we don't live based on reciprocity. We have a different standard. And here's what you need to understand. If you're, if you're married and you're building a marriage, you're building a marriage in a fallen world. And if you can imagine trying to build some kind of building or something, and every time you're like turn around to your tool book box and you're trying to grab your hammer and someone's taking your hammer away, you're trying to get your nails and somebody's taking your nails away or glue or screwdriver, whatever, whatever tools you got in your toolbox, and it's just, they like keep disappearing. That's kind of what our culture is doing to us is you're trying to build faithful, godly marriages. Because what our culture is continually telling us is, you need to think about you. What do you deserve? 
What do you need? What, what, what are they not providing for you that they ought to be providing for you? Think about yourself. It constantly promotes this idea of selfishness. And what's the Bible trying to get us to? An idea of selflessness. Well, I'm, I'm going to think about my spouse above myself. I'm going to put their needs, their hopes, their desires, their wants, all that above myself. And all of this gets highlighted for us because your spouse isn't perfect, okay? We're all married. All of us who are married are married to imperfect spouses. Your spouse will sin, and they will sin against you. And it's not always fun. And so the temptation then is to treat them according to their sin, And that's the message of the world. That's the message of the culture. Hey, treat your spouse according to their sin. Treat everybody according to their sin. And that's the temptation. And listen, when you do that, what you're actually doing is you're shrinking back and you're only thinking about yourself. You become really small because it's only, it's simply myself and my desires and my wants and my feelings and everything like that. Sin makes us small because it causes us to recoil and simply think about ourselves, And then when we do that, what, what else happens? We take offense real easily. We become really easily offended because it's all about me. And we can always find things that doesn't go the way that we would really like it to go. So here's the key thing for all of us, husbands and wives, remember this, your spouse isn't perfect, okay? Your spouse isn't perfect. And if you will release the burden of perfection from your spouse, things will go a whole lot better, right? right? If, if I'm not expecting my spouse, Steph, to be perfect, and she's not expecting me to be perfect, things go a lot smoother. When she expects perfection out of me, man, I'm a royal disappointment, I can, I can let you know, okay? And so when, when you release that burden of perfection, what happens? You're actually inviting God's grace into your marriage, because you're saying, I'm going to treat them not according to their sin, but I'm going to treat them according to the way that God has treated me. And so I'm, so I'm, going, to, I'm going to love them even when they sin against me. Even when they act like an enemy towards me, I'm going to demonstrate grace and I'm going to love them well. You know what else that does? That invites God's grace to be reciprocated to you. It, it invites then you to be treated with grace because you're treating them with grace. Because guess what? You're not perfect either. Okay, that's the reality, right? None of us are perfect. Uh, and, you know, we went through this whole idea of here's your identity, who you are in Christ. You're a saint. You're not a sinner. But what do we still experience in this life? We still experience sin. It's not our identity anymore. We're not defined by that anymore. We're now defined by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we still experience sin. And so we're, we're releasing uh, that experience, the, the experience, and we're going to focus on identity. But... You need to know a couple things, too, you know, because the other problem that our culture has with this verse right away is wives submit, okay? Be subject to. Like, we don't like that idea in, in this culture, right? Uh, when you talk about, you go back and you talk about citizens submitting to government, okay, we're okay there. You talk about uh, your employees submitting to the employer, okay, there. Children submitting to parents, we're okay. Less so in all three of those areas than we were maybe at one time, but, but we're generally okay with those three ideas. Once you get to the idea of wives submit to husbands, all of a sudden, that's, you know, that's, that's like a no deal. That stops everything. That's a hot button issue. No, we're out. And so I think it's important to understand 
what submission is not before we really get to what submission is, okay? To understand that biblical understanding of submission. First things first, submission is not a statement of value, okay? It's not God saying, well, you know what? Men are a little bit better. So, you know, that's why the wives need to submit. No, no, it's not a statement of value. It's not a statement of worth. It's not a statement of intelligence. It's not a statement of spirituality, of emotional superiority, anything like that. It's not a statement of value or worth at all. Also, submission is not just blind obedience. It's not being a doormat. It's not being a wallflower. It's not saying, I'm not going to have any opinions. I'm, I'm just going to do whatever. It's, it's not saying, you know what, I, w- I won't exercise any leadership responsibilities at all. That's all goes to... No, no, that's, that's not it either. Now, in some religions, you have, that idea gets played out in Islam, but um, not, not biblical Christianity. Uh, also... Very important to understand, submission is not a basis for any type of verbal abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. If, if that's happening to you, like, we'd love to be able to help because it's, that's, that's not what biblical submission is. And, and, and we'd, uh, we don't want you to see, in those, see you in that situation. Rather, what you need to understand is biblical submission was part of God's design even before the fall, okay? It wasn't like God looked and said, Eve, you really messed up when you listened to the serpent in the garden. So because of that, all women now like submit to your husbands because, you know, you, you kind of failed. No, no, that, that's not it. The idea of submission was created even before the fall because what happened was God looked at man. He looked at Adam and he said, oh man, this isn't good that he's alone. I need to make a helper suitable for him. By the way, that word helper is the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit. It's not any kind of a put down. It's a phenomenal compliment. He says, I I need to make a helper who can help him be everything that he can be. And basically what God is saying is, even in perfect Eden, he's looking at man and saying, you need help. You know, you're not gonna be able to do this alone. You need help. And so he creates Eve, he creates woman, to compliment man so that she can submit to him so that he can be everything that he can be. And at the same time, he can lay down his life for her and serve her so that she can be everything that she can be. All right? It's, it's this mutual beneficial relationship where you each complete the other forming one. Okay? And then that picture of oneness is a picture of God. All right, so that's the biblical idea of submission. The word literally means to rank under, uh, to willingly rank under in order to complete the other, okay? To willingly rank uh, uh, under in order to complete the other. Um, now, it's, un- it's important to understand, the world doesn't see submission that way, okay? I mean, you say submission in, in, in our world, and what do they think? They think second class, compliant, they take no initiative. They have no backbone. They're just a doormat. They're unassertive. That's, that, that might be the culture's idea of submissive, a submissive wife. It's not scripture's idea. Scripture's idea of a submissive wife is loyalty. It's helpfulness. It's faithfulness. It's completing. It's respecting. Okay. It's a voluntary selflessness in order to see your husband become everything that he can be. Now, Peter, is addressing all wives, but he's primarily focused on wives who have uh, husbands who don't obey the word, okay? 
guys who, who don't love Jesus, who are spiritually apathetic or disconnected altogether. And the idea is that Peter's probably writing to women who have become Christians since they've been married, okay? Christianity is this growing religion that's taking place throughout the Roman Empire, and so now you have women who are becoming believers, and now they have unbelieving husbands, and so now what do you do? Okay, that's, that becomes the issue. Uh, we still have the issue today, and we also have the issue today, which wasn't so much the case back then, of women who, and men, who become believers and then don't really take their relationship with Jesus so seriously for a while, and they get married, and then all of a sudden, they have this spiritual awakening, and say, man, I really need to invest in my relationship with Jesus. And now I'm looking, and I've got this husband, and he didn't care anything about Jesus, now what do I do? So that can be a reality in our culture today. And Peter, it's interesting, his encouragement. Because the encouragement is not, hey, listen, you married a bad dude. You know, you move on, cut bait, move on. He didn't say that, right? Paul didn't say that either, by the way, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But Paul does say this, if your unbelieving spouse leaves, then you're free to leave too, okay? Uh, so he does, he does give that out. Um, Peter also doesn't say, well, here's what you need to do. You really you just need to preach the gospel to him. I mean, you just inundate them with the gospel. And that might be our temptation, right? Because you so desperately want your spouse to know Jesus that just like every opportunity I can find, I'm, I'm working Jesus into this conversation. You know, he's going to hear it from me like so many times. It doesn't matter. I just, he, he needs to know. And, and that can sometimes be the temptation. And it comes from a good place because you're so desperately wanting to see your husband love Jesus. You know, hey, it'll be better for him. It'll be better for our marriage. It'll be better for everything if he just loves Jesus and takes this relationship seriously. So we want more. Peter says, no, no. Instead of turning the spiritual temperature up, actually dial it down. Actually dial it down. And how are you going to win him over? Without words. It's just by the conduct of your action. Like you're going to treat him with such kindness, with such goodness. It's not that you've never shared the gospel. It's not that he's never heard you say how much you love Jesus. But, but there's this character with which you continue to respect him. And those are the two qualities there. Did you hear it? Respect and purity. Okay? Now there's this respect that you demonstrate to him. And it's so winsome because he'll know, I don't really deserve that respect. You know, I, I, don't do, I do not deserve to be treated the way that she's treating me. Because I know how I treat her. And I know the kind of guy I am. I, I'm not deserving of this. But here she is, continuing to love me, continuing to respect me, even when I don't deserve it. And she deserves it far more. And so, hey, and Peter says, hey, you, that's how you're going to win him over. And, and who knows? What do you know? You, you get yourself a new husband. Not a different one, just a new one, okay? And some of you, you know that, right? <laughs> because you've experienced that in life. Hey, he's not the same guy that I married. I mean, this is exciting. Now he loves Jesus. Now he's loving people and his priorities have shifted and everything. Why? Because Jesus begins to color every aspect of life. It's not a new husband. It's a different, it's it's the same, but now different, new. Um, Let me just give you a couple tips of what this looks like in case you're in a marriage right now and your husband's difficult and he's just disconnected to Jesus. Let Let me just give you a couple practical tips. Talk about him in a positive light to others, okay? Speak well of him especially to his friends, his family. Treat his family with, with grace, respectfulness. Chances are they're probably not believers either. Um, ask for his opinions on things. Uh, when he leads well, praise him. 
right? And, and look for things where you can compliment him and tell him what a, what a great job he's doing. And make sure that you are a good follower, even if you're a better decision maker than he is. You know, make sure that, hey, when he's leading and stepping up, that you, that you follow well. Uh, when asked about your faith, you don't need to say as much as possible. Sometimes it's better to just say as little as needed, because sometimes with guys it is true. Less is more. And, uh, and then also be praying. I mean, that's, that's number one, right? But be, be praying for him and understand that while God is working in eternity, you, just, you focus on today. You be faithful and you love him in a faithful, respectful, pure way today. Now, some of you might hear that. You might think, Steve, you have no idea my husband, though. He's a really difficult guy. I mean, that's a whole lot easier said than done. I don't know if I can pull this off. Well, I think Peter's next words, like where he goes, helps with that a little bit, um, with difficult husbands. And what he says is that you need to be more concerned with the internal than the external. Okay? Instead of concerning yourself with adorning yourself physically, uh, think about adorning yourself internally. And the, sometimes this gets taken out of context, like terribly so. And wh- understand, Peter is not forbidding the braiding of hair. Okay, He's not saying if you braid your hair, you're in sin. He's not saying that if you wear jewelry, you're sinning. Okay, uh, I actually read about a church this week where they, they read this passage and they say, oh no, women can't wear jewelry. And so they go and they tell the women, hey, you can't wear jewelry. And so then, you know, next week they come back and some of them still are wearing their wedding rings. And they say, no, 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 can't wear wedding rings. And then some of the church said, no, that seems a little weird, you know? Well, I can't, I don't think I can go along with that. And there's this church split, okay? And seriously, this happens. He's not forbidding jewelry. He's not forbidding dresses. He's not forbidding the external things. What he is saying, though, is you need to prioritize the internal over the external. Like, if you care more about the external than you do the internal, you're missing the boat, all right? Prioritize the internal. Develop a gentle and quiet spirit. And here are two more adjectives that just get really misunderstood, okay? Developing a gentle and quiet spirit. What's Peter talking about here? Listen, um... The, the first one, gentle, means gracious, all right? That, it could almost be better, better translated gracious. Um, it's, it's this idea of being considerate, where you're, you're giving people kindness, uh, you're responding in kindness uh, and generosity rather than being demanding. Uh, that's the idea. And, it's, and by the way, this is not about passion. This is not saying, hey, women, you really shouldn't be passionate. You know, just kind of go along. To get, no, it's not that. You can read throughout the scriptures and you can find numerous examples of women who are incredibly passionate and they're commended for their passion. Um, by the way, gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So it's true for men just as much as it is for ladies. All right? Um, there's that. Next, quiet. Okay? Now, what Peter is saying here is that women should be seen and not heard. All right? <laughs> you guys laugh. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. First service, they just looked at me like, are you serious? <laughs> no, no, that's not what he's saying, okay? Sometimes it's been misunderstood to believe that, to think that that's not what he's saying. If, uh, I don't know if there's any Greek students in the, word, in, in the room, but if you study Greek, one of the Greek dictionaries that you'll get right away is a dictionary called Kittle. That's what it's called anyway. I don't, I don't remember right now like the official name for it, but you know, Greek students, you simply just refer to it as Kittle. 
And here's, here's how the word is translated, uh, defined this way, one who calmly bears the disturbances of life, okay? The idea behind this quietness is that you bring peace to a situation, okay? It's not talking about the amount of words that you use, okay? That, that has nothing to do with it. It's, it's bringing peace to a situation, bringing calm to a situation, Okay, just kind of bringing the temperature in the room down a little bit when everybody's kind of panicked and we're, what, what, what do we do? What do we do? No, 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 we're going to bring calm here. Now, why would that be important if you're married to an unbelieving husband? Because he's ultimately rudderless, okay? He, he, he doesn't have a, a set standard, right? I'm not, I, I don't, I, he's not following Jesus, so it's always according to his own feelings, his own emotion, his own ideas, his own thoughts. And guess what? We all change. None of us are consistent. And so our rudder is constantly shifting. God's the only consistent one, okay? He remains consistent, so therefore you have a steady rudder. So if you're married to someone who doesn't have that, what happens? Well, all the turmoil of life, decisions, now listen, even if we are Christians, we, we don't always operate in line with the Spirit. We still operate in line with the flesh, so we all want spouses, all of us, who bring calmness to your room. But you can imagine especially so for someone who's not a believer, and then when you come in and there's just this confidence, oh man, I'm so glad my wife is here because she just can, she can calm these things down. I don't, I, you know, I don't know, but she, she just, she can make this work in a way that I can't work. And there, there's just peace there. Okay. That's what this is talking about. It's important to understand that. Um, and what Peter says is, hey, a woman who, who brings, a wife who brings, this kind of gentleness and this kind of quietness to a, to a situation, man, that is precious in God's sight. It's highly valuable, highly precious in God's sight. And then Peter moves on, and to illustrate it, the example who he uses is Sarah. Okay, I don't have time to go through the entire marriage of Abraham and Sarah this morning. I wish I did, but th- th- there's a long story there. And their, their marriage is full of like ups and downs and bumpy roads. They, all kinds of wild stuff happen in their marriage. And then, and there's verse six here in first Peter three. And hey guys, if any of you look at that verse and say, Hey, you know what? I like that verse. I'm going to put that up there. Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Like if that becomes your life verse, let me tell you, it doesn't go over well. Okay. I speak from personal experience, right? <laughs> I tried it this week. Steph was not amused, all right? So don't find a, find a different life verse. Like that's, my, that's my encouragement here. But the idea here, that situation that Abraham's ref- or that Peter's referring to with Abraham, it took place in Genesis 18. The context of it was that they had angelic visitors to come to Abraham and Sarah, and they say, hey, guess what? You're going to have a baby. And Abraham's 100. Sarah's 90. She hears the news, and she starts laughing. Okay, so she's laughing, and in her laughter, she says, now, after all these years, now that I'm old, now I'm finally going to have the pleasure of having the child, and my Lord is old also. Okay, so it's, it's in the context of laughter. This is the context in which she refers to him as Lord. Uh, understand that, but then also, broadly speaking, the whole idea is just respect, okay? It's just she respected Abraham. All right? Now, we don't use that kind of language so much in our society, but if you just hop in a boat and you go, you go overseas, there are some places in the world where people are still referred to as my lord and my lady. It's just, it's terms of respect, okay? And that's the whole idea here, that Sarah respected Abraham. And, uh, and when you look at how she respected Abraham, 
Sarah was not a doormat, okay? Sarah was not a wallflower who never offered any advice or anything and just sat back, okay, Abraham, whatever you, whatever you say, I'm just going to do. No, no, she, she offered ideas. She contributed to the marriage. I mean, not all of her ideas were good. You know, some of them were pretty bad. But anyway, she, but she's offering stuff. And, and listen, Abraham didn't always lead too well either, okay? You know, he, he gave some pretty, pretty bad advice to his wife. Whenever you're telling your wife to pretend to be your sister, it usually doesn't go well, all right? And then when you have the idea, hey, I know it failed the first time, but why don't we just try it again, okay? You know, Abraham was a slow study in some cases. But what did, what did Sarah continue to do? She continued to respect. She continued to respect Abraham. Because, yeah, we can point out his flaws, and there are many and they're obvious. But he also loved the Lord. And, and, you know, he didn't lead perfectly. But I think that's kind of the point here. When Sarah becomes the example, uh, it's not because she was perfect. It's not because Abraham was perfect. It's not because they had a perfect marriage. In fact, I think that is why she becomes the example. That in this imperfection, when she doesn't always give the best advice to him and he doesn't always lead well and their marriage isn't, isn't just like always wonderful, there's still this respect. There's still this love that she exhibits toward him. And Peter says that every wife who looks at Sarah as a spiritual mentor and learns from her that you actually become her children. Okay, it's, it's a phenomenal uh, thing. And, and he says that you, you're able to live in frightening situations without being afraid. And when you think of how Sarah lived with Abraham, man, she went through some frightening situations, okay? I mean, some difficult, hey, we're going to leave everything we know and we're going to go into this other land. All right, and, we're, we're, and, and the people that they were dealing with and the situations they faced, it was a lot of frightening stuff. And he didn't always lead well. And here's the thing. When you're married to a husband, any husband, but especially a husband who doesn't love Jesus well, guess what? He's not always going to lead well. Okay? No husband's going to lead perfectly all the time. But if he doesn't love Jesus, he's especially not going to lead well. And so that can be really frightening, right? I'm trusting this guy to lead but I know that he's going to make some bad decisions and then I'm going to live in the backwash of all of it. I got to suffer the consequences of it because he's going he's to make some poor choices. And so here's the idea. Here's the overarching idea to wives that your ultimate hope is not in your husband. Your ultimate hope is in God. And by serving your husband well, it's, it's demonstrating love and respect and submission to God. And so wives ultimately hope in the Lord, okay? Wives ultimately hope in the Lord. Now, as Peter continues to write, it gets kind of interesting, because if you remember back at the end of chapter 2, when Peter writes about, hey, here's how you, here's citizens, here's how you submit to an unfair government, he doesn't then talk and say, okay, hey, government, here's how you should lead, here's how you should govern, okay? He doesn't he didn't talk about that. When he talks about servants, here's how you submit to masters, he doesn't then say, okay, masters, here's how you should lead. He doesn't do that. When he points to Jesus as the example and say, look how Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, even in the face of an unfair creation, he doesn't then say, oh, and by the way, creation, here's how you should then respond to Jesus. He doesn't do that. But here, when he's talking about, hey, wives, here's how you submit to an unfair husband, 
He then has a word for the husbands, though. And he says, husbands, listen up. Here's how you need to live. Here's how you need to act. Why? Because you're to serve her too. Just as she completes you, you complete her. You lay down your life for her so that she can also become all that God intends for her to be. And so Peter says, here's what you do. You live with your wife. Live with her. That's that's where he begins. In other words, husbands, it's your responsibility to initiate the closeness of the relationship. And you might say, well, my wife's just way more relational than I am. Might be the case. She's going to help you out a lot, I'm sure. But it's your responsibility as husbands to initiate the closeness of the relationship, to make her feel comfortable, like, hey, I can talk, I can share he, everything, everything, everything about me, my hopes, my, my dreams, my fears, my concerns, my plans, all that. She should feel comfortable to be able to share with you all those things. And Peter goes on, and he says, to live with her in an understanding way. The phrase literally means according to knowledge, all right? This is not academic knowledge, all right? It's not like, well, you know, okay, well, I know she has like brown hair and brown eyes. Uh, no, that's not what he's talking about, all right? He's talking about her heart, like to really know the things that makes her tick, that gets her excited, the things that makes her afraid or, or has or her, her concerns and her fears in life, but to really know her. And, and it's your responsibility as husbands to create that atmosphere and to dig deep and to pursue the depth of the relationship. You understand, it's not just about providing a nice home. It's about cultivating a depth of relationship because your relationship with your wife is to picture Christ's relationship with the church. And so it's, it's a big deal. Now, he also says, love her as the weaker vessel. This is another one where people, oh man, the Bible's just so misogynistic. I just can't get over Listen, the Bible's not talking about uh, that she's weaker emotionally. It's not saying she's weaker spiritually. It's not saying she's weaker intellectually or anything. It's simply weaker physically, okay? The Greek makes it really clear. It's just physical. That's, that's what it's talking about here. And, I, and listen, it's a generality. Newsflash, most men are stronger than most women, all right? That's how God made us. Are there exceptions? Are there some women who, like, I would not want to see in, like, a backyard or something, like, you know, a dark neighborhood? Yeah, probably. Yeah, there are. But as a general rule, as a general rule, I'd much rather come against a lady than some big, strong dude. Okay, that's just, I'm just going to, that's how it is, right? And he's saying, Peter's writing here, and saying, hey, as women are weaker, okay? Physically, not in any other sense. But knowing that, you got to love her. And so what, the, what does that mean? Just practically speaking, man, maybe you come home from the end of the day and you're saying, man, I feel tired. And she says, hey, I need a break. You, you got the kids and you're thinking, I want a break. You know, I've been working all day. Well, you need to understand that, hey, maybe she really does need a break. Or maybe what she needs is somebody to talk to. Maybe she needs to vent a little bit because it's been a hard day. But you're cultivating a relationship so that you understand what she really needs. All right? Are you going to get it right 100% of the time? No, none of us, none of us do. But that's the idea, right, is, is, is you know what she needs. Lastly, Peter says, grant her honor. And what this speaks is to how you value her, that she should know her worth in your eyes, that you should treasure her, that you should adore her, and that she should... Never wonder about that. You know, well, I wonder if like, he really loves me. There should never be any doubt that 
Her place in your life is superior to any other person on this earth, right? She's number one. There should be no doubt about that because of the way you treasure her and the way you value her. That's honoring her. And so husbands, it, boils, it really boils down to this. Treasure your wife, okay? Husbands, treasure your wife. Peter says that this is a really big deal. Um, and he says, look, your wives, they're, they're heirs with you of this gracious gift of life. And you treasure your wife so that your prayers are not hindered. Okay? Now, that word hindered, Paul is going to use that word in First Thessalonians. He's also going to use it in Romans. In both those contexts, what he's saying is, hey, I tried to get to you, but I was hindered. I wanted to see you, but I couldn't make it to you. The word has this idea of a road blockage, okay? Hey, the road's blocked. I can't get through. And what Peter's saying here is, listen, if you don't love your wife well, if you're not treasuring her, don't think that God's hearing your prayers because they're being hindered. Now, the assumption is, one, that you're praying. But number two, the the idea is, hey, if you don't care enough to take care of your wife, Listen, God allows the enemy to like intercept your prayers and to make them ineffectual. So love your wife and then come talk to God. All right? That's the idea. That's how seriously this is. Um, Listen, just as God puts limitations in place on things like gravity, God puts in place limitations on marriage so that it's for our good. And listen, we can talk and we can dream about living without limitations. You know, the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he removes the limitation of sin. Right now, if you know Jesus, you've been freed, uh, you've been, you've been freed from the penalty of sin. Okay? You're not under that penalty anymore. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right now, we're in process of being removed Uh, from the limitation of the power of sin. But there will be one day when we are removed from the limitation of the presence of sin. You understand, God removes the biggest limiting factor in our life, and it's sin. And um, right now, as we live in in this life, in a world that's so messed up when it comes to marriage and sexuality, one one of the greatest testimonies that we can have as a church is strong marriages. Marriages that honor the Lord um, because we love and we, and we look out for the good of one another. So, you know, Central, if, if we can build those type of marriages here, it's going to go a long way into our effect in our community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who, who didn't treat us based on how we deserve, but who, who loved us um, even when we were your enemies. And so, God, thank you for demonstrating your love to us in that way. May we uh, be husbands and wives who demonstrate that same type of love to our spouse. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.